John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 565.PR1121, certificate number 26004, Hands Across America. I know you're a fan of the supergroup. I love all supergroups. What's your favorite supergroup? Traveling Wilburys. Wow. That's like a non-ironic answer. It was right there. I the... do love the Traveling Wilburys. I also love the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, I mean, you can't. There's no other supergroup that has a Beatle and Bob Dylan. <laughs> right. Like, if, you're, if your least famous guy is the frontman of Yellow... That's a that's a pretty good supergroup. It's a pretty good supergroup. And you know the Traveling Wilburys are from uh roughly this same era that we're going to discuss today in the show. I know that you and I have both felt a little bit shy about entering too many uh entries into the omnibus from our heyday of the mid 80s mid to late 80s. I think you're a little less shy than me. I'm you know I'm Mr. I, Mr. Trapper Keeper. I started in the middle of the 70s Mr. and worked Tootsie my Pop way. Licking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it did, did seem like a very fertile time in, in uh, American and world history uh, that uh, some of those things should not be forgotten by the future. Do you have other supergroups you want to put up against the Traveling Wilburys? Are you going to stick up for Asia? No, the thing is I'm a, I, I, I'm a Traveling Wilburys booster myself, but there are some supergroups that undeniably are maybe not more super than a Beatle and a, and a Dylan, but other, uh, but some supergroups that actually include a Dylan, um, <laughs> like like uh, USA for Africa, like USA for Africa. Does that count? Uh, well, I mean, it was a supergroup. It did have a, uh, it did have a big, big, big international hit. I feel like you have to have a full record. You can't just have one single like USA for Africa did. Well, in fact, USA for Africa was a full record. Wait. Um, they put out a. But is it just uh, them talking as they're filing in? <laughs> oh, I feel Collins is here. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, get over here. No, the USA for Africa LP was a gatefold LP. But does it have more than one song? It does. Um, does it have We Are the World in um, in Spanish on the back? 
It does. Here's a here's a little uh, selection of the track list. Uh, the first song, of course, is We Are the World. Uh, I love the, that one. The famous one. Always start off with the single. But then the second song is by Steve Perry of Journey. It's called If Only for the Moment. Wait, and they all... They all stood around and sang all these other songs? No, oh. no. What it was was that the that a lot of the participants on the USA for Africa, uh, uh, you know, s- collective supergroup, then added songs, uh, like unreleased songs for the, so to, just, to flesh out the record. It's just like one record. of those 90s charity records. Yeah. It's like Red, White, and Famine. The Pointer Sisters are on there, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. This is not a supergroup. This doesn't count. Uh, here's a, there's a, uh, there was a group called Northern Lights. Which was a sub super group just of the Canadians. So <laughs> of of USA for Africa? Yeah. So is Aldo, Dan Aykroyd on it? <laughs> Aldo Nova is there, Brian Adams, uh, Anne Murray. If Dan Aykroyd is not on this, I don't care. I'm looking, he, I he, don't see Oh wait, Eugene Levy is there. Wait, Getty Lee. But Eugene Levy wasn't on We Are the World. No, this is the I, I would love to hear his solo though. The Northern Lights are a separate group. Neil Young appears. So it truly That's is a super good. group. Uh, then Prince. Uh, and the Revolution submitted a tune. Chicago, Tina Turner. I mean, this is a big album. Huey Lewis. To me, this does not count as a supergroup. This is this is a collection. This is like, I mean, this is the White Album. Basically, right. they didn't even record them together. <laughs> but this supergroup album even has a sub supergroup. That's pretty good. So that's a that's kind of a big deal. It's true. There's no supergroup within. Well, I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young has a supergroup within it. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Is there a sub-temple of the dog? Is there like an Emerson and Lake record? I don't think so. Although, wait a minute. We have seen a couple of those, right? Um, like uh, super groups that morph into different kinds of super groups. Like what about when Queen had Paul Rogers as the singer? But they just say they're but Queen they're with just, Paul Rogers. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I guess it's not a super group. It kind of is. I mean, a super group is just any group where the people come from other other groups. groups. But but we're it's judging we're judging the super groups according to how super they are. Also all these examples are like 30 years old. Have there been no super groups since Temple of the Dog? What was the last super group? I mean the thing is there could be a now super it's just group featuring, of, right? Yeah. You don't need that anymore. There could be a super group of K-pop artists and I don't know that I would that uh, that I would be aware of it. Looking at the latest Coachella lineup it could all be one band. I mean, the only band I recognize is Rage Against the Machine. The rest of it could just be a super group. They could all be performing together. I just found out my son wants to go to Coachella because he loves Frank Ocean so much. Really? And I said, that's great. I will let you go. And he was like, will you buy me a ticket? And I said, no, you got to get yourself oh, to Coachella. I've, dog. I don't, I don't understand why he thinks... Why he thinks I need to finance well, I mean, his still, bad idea. He's still living under your roof. He's still technically your... Uh... He gets room board in Coachella. That's the... <laughs> well, so now how do you rate, going back to the mid-80s, Futurelings should understand that this was a... Uh, that there are supergroups like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, whose only purpose was to make protest music and earn money for themselves. But... Uh, <laughs> It's a very, very harsh take on this seminal folk group. And I mean, honestly, that's true of the Traveling Wilburys, too. They were they were just friends sitting around having a good time. It's also then, true of every rock group that has tried to sell records. Except, except for uh, this brief fashion in the mid-'80s uh, where musicians came together to donate their time and, and uh, talent for, uh, for a good cause. And sort of the... Um, the real trailblazers here uh, were a group of British super musicians, British and Irish musicians. It's all Bob Geldof's fault. Who formed a group called Band-Aid at the behest of Bob Geldof, uh, Geldof and Midge Ure from the band Ultravox. 
Uh, Midge doesn't get as much of the credit as Bob Geldof does, although uh, Midge produced the thing and was was uh, certainly like a big part of it. It's funny that that Bob Geldof gets all the credit. There are some people that claim that Bob's then girlfriend Polly Yates, who went on to be Michael Hutchins's uh, squeeze lady uh, uh, muse. Yeah, she. Uh... Uh, Paula, Polly Yates was, uh, what, what some said the brains behind the operation. Is that right? Yeah. That she came up with the idea. If I remember right, she had just died the first time I was in ever in the UK. How many uh, times did she die after that? It was the first time she had died mm-hmm. and the first time I was in the UK. She dies every time I go back. No, but the tabloids <laughs> were everywhere talking about, you know, this poor orphaned girl, uh, whatever Hutchinson Polly Yates's daughter was named, Tiger Lily Lulani, right? Who had Hutchin- lost it, lost Hutchins it all. Yates or whatever, right? Uh, and she died of uh, OD. Is that true? Yeah, uh, not not uh, not Tiger Lily Polly Yates died well, of yes. OD. And so the headlines, were, and I had no idea who Polly Yates was, and it really was like you're in a foreign country. Just because they're speaking English doesn't mean you know the celebrities. There are a hundred presenters could die tomorrow that you would never have heard of, and uh, it would be front-page news here. I kind of assumed it was just like Canada. They just had all our celebrities. She had a hit. She she had, she had covered uh, These Boots Are Made for Walking and was on the charts in 1982. On uh, the U.S. charts? No, no, no. No, goodness, goodness, no, 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 no. But, but she is a person that was famous in, in, uh, in uh, Britain and overseas territories. Yes. No, but, she was legitimately famous, yeah. but I just could not believe it. Was, it to me, it seemed like Princess Die-level mourning for someone I had never heard of. Yeah, and I feel like the uh I feel like she this whole like uh Geldof Hutchins Yates love triangle was also kind of a tabloid scandal in the mid eighties. Yeah, there's these people that are only famous in tabloids. And if yeah. you're in America, you know ours, but you right. just don't know theirs. The thing is Bob Geldof if you put Bob Geldof and Michael Hutchins up against a wall and said, pick the more sexy one. I think you're going to choose Michael Hutchins 10 out of 10 times. So I do feel like it was a, it was a trade up. If you're, if, if, if sexiness is what you're after, uh, Michael Hutchins never put together a super group that sent famine relief to Africa, but he definitely was a better dancer. I'm going to say. Yes. He also, those are not equivalent accomplishments. Well, I don't know. It depends. I mean, I rate dancing pretty highly. He's uh, Geldof uh, apparently is better at kink management as well since he's still alive. Right. Well, you know, that whole business of Michael Hutchins having uh, died of autoerotic asphyxiation. I don't think that's in the, I don't think that's in the coroner's report. I think you've told me this before. I always assumed it was true. I think I believe everything I see in Polly Yates headlines. There's a lot of, I mean, the coroner's verdict was suicide. It's Polly Yates that refused to accept that verdict. Because yeah. when you were saying, if you put Michael Hutchins up against a wall, my first thought is, well, he'd probably be into that. Mm. I guess, I guess I've been unfairly, <laughs> I guess I've been unfairly believing the Polly Yates version of history. Uh, so, so yeah, Band-Aid. Do they know it's Christmas? Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, so, uh, Geldof was living in the UK as a UK or as a, uh, yeah, United Kingdom resident. Um, although Geldof's he's Irish. Irish born, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually he's born in Wales. Oh no, that's, that's Polly H. She's Welsh. So that's some, there's a lot going on here. There really is. And you know, an Irishman, a Welshman and a, <laughs> and an Australian walk into a threesome. Yeah. 
Um, oh yeah, Australian. This uh, this was a time during which um, the the s- sort of famine conditions in Ethiopia were a uh, were like a very topical news item, and in the UK press in particular, um, there was a lot of reportage happening on. Um, on a, a, a sort of series of, of famines in Ethiopia that happened over the course of several years. And those famines were part of and a component of, and in some, uh, in, in some large measure, a result of a, um, a revolution that was happening within Ethiopia from, well, really starting in the sixties, but, uh, a revolution that, uh, sort of was a was a, a set of cascading revolutions that happened from the uh the uh deposition not deposition how do you, what is the form of depose well when Haile Selassie got I guess it was, got, got smothered with a pillow yeah is it deposition yeah, I guess yeah. deposal deposing deposement deposement De- these all sound like 90s R&B groups they do <laughs> I love deposement <laughs> in 19 uh, up until 1975 uh, the emperor Haile Selassie who you might uh, have heard of already because he is I and I uh, Joe Rastafari uh, I'm sure he's worshiped in the future Haile, yeah just, just as, as well now. as he is now mm-hmm. but Haile Selassie was a was the emperor of Ethiopia for uh, for decades and um, gradually lost uh, lost his control over Ethiopia. He ruled sort of autocratically, and Haile Selassie was a member of the the um, Amhara people. And there are a lot of different uh, people in Africa, a lot of peoples. And he was he ran a very very repressive government. You know, Haile Selassie is regarded was regarded as a living god during his time by various peoples. And but that got punctured a bit when he was successfully killed in his own bed when he was killed in his own bed but he he um he had a sort of reign of terror style uh uh, ruling style toward certainly in the latter half of his rule and so it's a it's a situation even now that there would be people listening to the show who would recoil at uh at hearing you know the degradations at the hands of Haile Selassie but he was he, he was very repressive of, uh, of different ethnic groups, people in the north in particular, and um, these different uh, groups started to rebel against his rule during the sixties and seventies. The Tigray people and the Eritreans um, sort of formed separatist groups, and this was during a period when Marxist revolution was um, uh, the Marxism was a uh, a sort of uh, framework that revolutionary organizations gravitated towards. There aren't a ton of capitalist revolution groups. Typically (laughs) you don't see, you don't see the young Republicans out. You don't uh, see that as often taking over Gabon. Uh, So, uh, so the Eritreans and the, uh, the Tigrayans had sort of Marxist um, pretensions Mm -hmm. And they were supported by the Soviet Union that was very interested in destabilizing uh, autocratic governments, spreading, fomenting Marxist revolutions throughout Africa. This was a period where that was a that that, that Africa was a major stage in the kind of uh, global battle for uh, uh, 
Yeah, the risk board didn't look good for them. That's right. Like they were very excited about Angola because they hadn't had a lot of anything good since Cuba. That's right. And there's there's so, so I mean there's so much opportunity in Africa. We see it now in the in that the uh, the Chinese are are sort of pouring money in pouring the- money and and they don't have a ton of uh, there there isn't there isn't the same sort of global risk battle happening. Um, and so the the energy that China is pouring into Africa and in fact Ethiopia isn't being really matched by any countervailing yeah, ideology. Gonna, they're going to have very strategic. I mean, China's putting in military bases yeah. on the on the Red Sea. Yeah, um, when I was in Ethiopia a couple of years ago, they were uh, the Chinese were building a, a a whole railroad out to um, out to the ocean. Thank you. On behalf of Ethiopia, like very generously. Well, if they if they'd had better, maybe if they'd had better transportation in the eighties, they wouldn't have had some of the the instability and last mile problems that led to the famines. The famines were intensified by the political situation. Right? Well, not just intensified. So, so in in nineteen seventy five, Haile Selassie was deposed and murdered, and in his place, a um, a, a government called the Derg, which was. Uh, D E R G Derg, the the Derg, the Derg, which which it's like something from Frank Herbert's Dune. I know it's shorthand for the Provisional Military Government oh, of Socialist Ethiopia. It's an acronym. Yeah, it's and, like FARC or whatever. And we're talking about Amharic, so it's very hard to translate directly uh, what their acronyms might be. But they were a socialist, uh, you know, like a I'm sorry, Marxist junta that took over and. Like a lot of Marxist juntas, now I'm not somebody that's always going to come out against the latest Marxist junta, but one of the things that we've talked about- You could switch to junta, or then, then you sound muy autentico. Oh, junta. Junta. Oh, speak uh, Spanish to me again, Come Judd. on, speak Spanish. <laughs> um, as is common, I think, and we've, we've talked about this quite a few different times in the, the uh, backyard blast furnaces, um, it's-, it's uh, not uncommon to initiate for a Marxist group newly in power to initiate reforms, and those reforms often take the form of land reform, centralization of the. That's right, and Ethiopia is largely an agricultural uh, economy. Right, a, a vast majority of the economy is agriculture. It's not; they're not making cars. Um, they're they are uh, generating you know, produce and, and livestock. Delicious, uh, delicious flatbread and Dora Watt and Jira. Right. And the Derg had a better idea uh, and they started moving, um, uh, ch- changing the, uh, the, the agricultural quotas, changing the, um, the sort of rural arrangement. And a lot of that was because although the Derg had deposed Haile Selassie, they were, uh, they were still being opposed by different Marxist revolutionary groups within Ethiopia, specifically the Tigray and the Eritreans in the form of the Tigray People's Liberation Front. I like how there's a Marxist group for each minority. And the uh, Eritrean Liberation Front and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Uh, they uh, sound um, fake. Among many, many others. <laughs> they sound like punchlines from a 70s movie. You know, Faye Dunaway is here from the... Eritrean People's Liberation Front. And they, all these different Marxist organizations did not trust the Derg. They didn't feel that the Derg uh, represented uh, very well the various other peoples of Ethiopia. Not me. I love the Derg. 
And you got to hand it to the Derg. The Eritreans uh, were fighting for independence. The Tigrayans were also. I mean, Ethiopia was um, on the verge of of being rent asunder. And so the Derg, in addition to instituting all these uh, agricultural reforms and social reforms, they were doing those things also as a component of the civil war, trying to deny food to their enemies in the north, trying to control um, uh, trying to control the distribution of food, but also sort of using foreign aid as a as a component in waging war. Yeah, well, the money was not going to the actual hungry people. Right, saving, you know, re- reserving aid or or directing it uh, this and thus. I remember being shocked at that at that uh, kind of counterintuitive hot take in the 1980s when the only thing anyone knew about Ethiopia was that they were starving, and the answer was actually, man, there's plenty of food. It's the corrupt bureaucracy and developing world, you know. Uh, Mind blower. You right. Could, you couldn't just give them food. It wouldn't help. Well, it was a mind blower. And from 1975 to 1977, there was a period of uh, that was called the Red Terror, where, uh, just as the name suggests, it was, uh, it was not a fun time to be really anyone in Ethiopia. Um, and, you know, and I mean, this region still, um, although Ethiopia now is a very stable country, you know, the Somalia to its south and Sudan to its north. I mean, it's still an area where the political situation hasn't hasn't calmed completely down. In fact, Somalia uh, tried to invade Ethiopia during this Red Terror period. It was a, it was a pretty rough time. Uh, and so instituting land reform, um, it, it didn't, even if you ascribe noble intentions to most Marxist land reform, which I would hesitate to do. This was, this was even more uh, like a wing of a kind of military strategy or a self-preservation strategy. Nobody actually thought it was time for in, to industrialize Ethiopia. Right. They, they knew what they were doing. And so by the early 80s, um, there began to be signs of famine in Ethiopia. Uh, and that famine was kind of restricted to areas under the control of the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the Eritrean <laughs> uh, People's Liberation Front. Uh, people in the south um, that were under Derg control, uh, the Derg had assured that the, that, that the agricultural produce was sort of siphoned off and, and was feeding the people with the uh, you know in in the their right area control, of influence, yeah. um, there was a lot of controversy about the, the sort of European NGOs that were um, under Derg control. Uh, there was forced resettlement happening, and this was all uh, in the early '80s, prior to any later sign of drought, which. Um, so which the food was, shortages predated the meteorological stuff. Yeah, there was still plenty of food being grown in Ethiopia uh, when signs of famine first arise, arose. Uh, but this is all being played out in the British news media. And Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats is a, you know, is a, a part of this sort of late 70s, early 80s activist music community and he sees an opportunity to support 
um, the poor in Africa. The imagery was shocking. It was it, it's the it, kids with the flies and the swollen stomachs. It was un, unescap- inescapable. Famine, famine is terrible ladies. to consider, and um, and the Derg made a real point to uh, to propagandize the famine and to describe it as as uh, the result of meteorological uh, factors and the and and to not divorce it from the war, but to make it. F- seem like it was a product of um, the product of the revolutionaries rather than of the central government. Well, because they knew the influx of foreign aid would help prop up their regime, I assume. Well, and the influx of sympathy, right? There's a, there, there, there are, uh, there were competing groups vying for international sympathy. And uh, if your government is being, if your, if your military uh, supplies are coming from the Soviet Union and, it, it's part of a geopolitical chess game. The, this kind of these sort of uh, cynically, the optics of it become part of that. At one point, the um, uh, the the military was funded by forty six percent of the gross national product, uh, and like wow. a, like human aid relief and stuff was you know from. Five percent. That might seem low GMP. to future listeners, <laughs> especially if they're future Americans. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so Geldof organized uh, what became known as Band Aid, uh, and that was a that was a super group, as uh, as you love to. And I think Band Aid probably has to be in your list of top five super groups, right? Um, uh, no, I just like that song. My kids make us listen to Christmas radio stations all December. And, and you don't like it. They play, do they know it's Christmas so much. So if I ever liked that song, it's been, it's been wrung out of me by warm 106.5. The, uh, the song, do they know it's Christmas? Um, it's, you know, it's often commented upon that, um, Ethiopia is largely a Christian nation. Yeah, they, the majority of Ethiopia is some kind of Orthodox Coptic Christianity, right? They, yeah. they totally know it's Christmas. They well, they know of Christmas, although um, the the Ethiopian Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas on the seventh of January. Oh, so so not only do they know it's Christmas, they know more than Bob Geldof does when it's Ethiopian Christmas. Yeah, they knew a lot about Christmas, and and uh, because their church is very very old, they um, they could make a fairly reasonable claim that they knew better <laughs> when Christmas was more than some Irish Catholic guy. Um, but uh, so that's always that's always I think struck a lot of people as a weird question to ask: Do they know it's Christmas? But the but the impulse was. Um, uh, I think that seeing the, the the starving children on TV, who were completely isolated, completely out of touch from uh, from you know the for the wider world, they it wasn't that they didn't know what Christmas was, but that they wouldn't even know when it, what time it was, what year it was. Completely isolated, unable. To have access to, I think it needs a little rewrite. To so you're not implying that their ignorance is the root of the problem, right? It's 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 a little tricky. Maybe the advent calendars had been lost, <laughs> uh, but the um, it was a it was a fairly interesting idea that uh, Geldof had to put together um, all of his sort of leftist 
friends. The Boomtown Rats weren't like as big as you two, but he was a he was a connector, right? Geldof was, had a lot of friends. Well, you can tell by looking at the, you can see who's in his Rolodex by looking at the video. And he got Sting, and he got you know a lot of popular. There's Michael of Wham. Mm-hmm. Isn't bon- Bono's on it? Isn't he? Bono's there. Um, and and they recorded this song, which was uh, which was even in 1984, uh, it it sort of felt vaguely colonialist it was like as you were saying kind of um condescending uh but it had a you know it had a good beat and you could dance to it and it rocketed up the charts um and raised quite a bit of money for african relief now as we as we see uh that money quite a bit of it went to Ethiopia and was siphoned off by the various revolutionary groups and used to either fund the Dirk, Derb, Derp, the Derp, the, 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 the Derg. So they're shooting shells at the, at the Eritreans with Bob Geldof's picture on it, basically. Yeah, right. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of it went down there just as raw materials, but a lot of it went just as cash. Uh, the money that fell into the hands of the Tigray people's, uh, people's liberation front also, used as much for bullets as for food. And then, tragically, there genuinely was a drought, a severe drought, in uh, Eastern Africa for the next two years, 1983 to 85. Uh, There was a catastrophic drought, and it compounded the effects of this land reform and the... uh, the war between these different Marxist groups and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, were, well, died. Uh, As many as 8 million people were affected by the famine. Um, Millions of people were actually being fed by fed with relief food. So the, the world did respond and, and NGOs did pour food aid into Africa enough that it kept Millions of people alive, but by some estimates, over a million people died wow. of starvation. Other estimates put that as at a, at a slightly lower number, but n- none less than than hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died. So this became um, the the band aid and and do they know it's Christmas? Uh, however, sort of misguided the tone of the tune. Uh, Because people aren't buying it because they love the lyrics. Like a lot of the reason for those high sales is because people are like, let's all do our part and I'll buy this single I never normally buy. Yeah, and everybody likes to hear Sting. Uh, When Sting's voice rings out over your speakers, it's just like, empty my pockets. It just brightens my day. Every little thing he does is magic. But it did direct a lot of attention and a lot of uh, energy and it funneled a lot of money to uh, relieving this desperate situation. Now, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of oversight about the situation. And the and as you were saying, the story that was told at the time w- did not really describe the conditions that it described. I mean, it's it's one thing to show people dying of starvation. It's another thing to zoom that lens out a little bit and show uh, like warring groups that are fighting over territory, 
that are imposing economic systems that on a country that you know that uh, was already struggling, and you know it, it was a very sort of uh, Stalin in Ukraine situation where the famine was, um, you know, it played a strategic role. Millions of people, or I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were dying, and not all of those. Um, was it just God? I've noticed that there's some legacy of this for people our age, I think, whereby the kind of the smart in the know thing to say is that, oh, well, you can't throw money at problems like this. Like I see this often when, you know, from people who think there should be a rebuttal to Bill Gates-style philanthropy. Uh, you know, I, I do hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, it's not like you could, it's not like you could solve these problems with money. And, you know, Bill Gates actually is, you know, eradicating diseases from whole nations by throwing large amounts of money strategically at it. But I think there is some kind of uh, leftover Ethiopian famine hot take that I often hear from certain cynical quarters like, well, you've got to do something better with the money than that. You can't just throw it at the poorest people. What a waste. And uh, uh, there's another component of that uh, that we'll see in a second. But but here, just to give you a sense of the super group that that did uh, do they know it's Christmas? I'll just I'll read you a couple of names here. We've I was looking got, at the list. There's only like the number of Americans is tiny. It's Jody Watley and Cool and the Gang, and that's it. I think for the U.S. That's right, Cool and the Gang. Uh, but uh, but from the British side, we've got uh, Bono and Adam Clayton. Phil Collins is there. Makes you wonder what Larry um, and the Edge were doing. Boy, George flew in just to do his... He flew in from America on the Concord just to sing his part. What a hero. Uh, Simon Lebon, George Michael, yeah, as you it's said. It's all of Duran Duran, it looks like. Uh, Paul McCartney did a spoken word thing. It must have been weird. people who couldn't be there. Like yeah. Bowie and McCartney must have recorded something after the fact. Everybody from Duran Duran, Sting. Um, so Phil Collins plays drums. I don't know if you said that. Uh, and it went to number one all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and over in the United States of good old America, uh, it similarly inspired people. And it wasn't just um, it wasn't just the famine in Africa, but also watching our British pop friends uh, put together this kind of at the at the time sort of unprecedented collective effort. And one of the things that was astonishing about it was. You think of musicians, pop musicians, as having somewhat competitive relationships with one another. All these, uh, all these people are, uh, their singles are knocking one another off the charts. You don't normally see them except in an award ceremony context, and especially not collaborating on a thing. So, uh, during the MTV years, where now we we had a picture of all these people, we'd seen Boy George and. And Cindy Lauper, we thought of them as adjacent to one another because we watched their videos one after another. But here they all were in the same room. It was very exciting. And yeah, there is some kind of weird sense of you know, you're getting a peek behind the curtain. At the, like we still like it when we see comedian, you know, actors joshing each other at award shows. You're like, oh my gosh, what a good sport! Or you know, they show up on SNL, right? You know, and we're like, teehee, yeah, look at famous amazing? people clowning around. Like really. We should expect that these people can all get in a room and yeah, right, and, and they, smile. They for, all sniff for, the for same cocaine. Hours. They're <laughs> yeah, not exactly. they're not alien to one another. <laughs> do you know what I really enjoy, John? What do you enjoy, Ken? I enjoy these addenda entries we've been recording 
Yeah, we just got done. Omnibus. We just got done doing an addenda, and it really, um, they really stand on their own. It's fun because we have managed to have create this group of thousands of people who just do the work for us. Mm-hmm. They and all have uh, they all have things they want to add to our shows. They have fun, interesting expertise and stories, and they you know you want to talk back to the podcast, right. and of course you can, or you'll look like an idiot on the train. But now they can. They're they're suggesting their own material, and in the addenda episode, we can we can share those to a to an audience in this time period and beyond. Sometimes we argue with them, but most of the time their additions are relevant and and quite interesting. And we're certainly respectful. That's right. Well, yeah, mostly. Mostly. Uh, but we, but they they lead us to sometimes go uh, go off on a different aspect of an episode we've done. Yeah, they're they're kind of freewheeling in a way that, you know, with omnibus we're usually trying to get back to the story because we're trying to you know, finish educating the future on whatever happened to this uh, French foreign minister or whatever. And here uh, we can just say whatever and we can just start randomly Googling facts. You were, you wanted to know how long a $5 bill lasted. So we looked it up. Five years. 4.9 years or something. Uh, Uh, But these are available only to people who subscribe to our Patreon, which involves some sort of contribution to the production of the show. Yes, we have multiple tiers, and at any tier from $5 up, which would be all the tiers, uh, you get immediate access at the end of every month to a new addenda episode, some of which are like getting up to an hour in length. That's right. How long was that last one? Was it close uh, to an hour? Yeah, it was about 50 minutes, I think, worth of us going from episode to episode and kind of dealing with our viewer mail. So uh, a whole new, really a regular-sized bonus omnibus entry every month if you uh, if you have the resources and, and choose to support the show. And at different uh, tiers of our Patreon, you're, there are other you have other benefits, right? Uh, d- name some benefits at different tiers. At the ten dollar uh, tier, you get access to our as well as the addenda episode. You get access to our image feed where we post show notes. Um, funny things people have sent us, you and I clowning around. Our show notes are hilarious. They're illegible. All right. But let's not let's not downplay how good they are since we do want people to donate. But there are tons of goofs. Uh, you know, right now I'm sitting here with the um with the Jeopardy trophy greatest of all time. It's sitting for some reason over here on my side of the desk. For some reason. And on top of it, it has a little statue of a Basque or Catalonian boy taking a poop. Now you're not going to know what that symbolizes, what that comes from, unless you're a subscriber. And this is a photograph that we'll post on our image. At the the $20 tier, you get a signed copy of one of our show notes. We are, I'm going to make you, I have brought a Sharpie and I'm going to make you sign those today. Oh, we're going to send them to people in the mail. Yes, we are sending them out worldwide. Wow, how exciting. For them. Yeah. Uh, well, and for you, if you like signing sure, I things. I like signing things. Uh, for $50, these, 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 high, these high tiers are very uh, aspirational. Sure, they're, they're specific to people that, that have um, have a little bit more money to share. Well, and they're specific to people who, like, you know, could just as easily hear the show for free, but enjoy the feeling of support and community, yeah, I guess. right. At the $50 level, you get to choose a show topic oh. that goes to the top of our heap. And we just got our first... Uh, Request today from from Krista, who uh, has two ideas that she'd like us to do. I'm excited to hear them. And at the hundred dollar level, John and I will actually come to your house and do some chores. Yeah, that's right. We I will be a human Roomba. <laughs> we will uh, put me in a closet, and we will actually do a, a, a like a video chat. 
Yeah. At the $100 level. That's a lot of money, though. It really, I don't see, I, the, on no level is that worth it. Again, it's just about the feeling of, I don't know, of support and community that people feel. A video chat with somebody? It's probably going to be MC Hammer's kids or somebody that we're going to talk to. Where would they get the money? Oh, oof. Ouch. MC Hammer burn. But in the U.S., um, no less a person than Harry Belafonte, who was a generation older than, uh, than the rest of these pop stars, uh, a man of the sort of, you know, Calypso jazz scene of the... Turned civil rights leader, right? And well, then became a, a very activist civil rights leader. Yeah. He'd been concerned about the situation in Africa for a long time and had been trying to conceive of a way to get an American response uh, to put together a, um, you know, uh, aid from uh, from the entertainment side of American business and directed at Africa. And so when he saw, he would, he'd already been working on this project. And when he saw uh, what happened with Band-Aid, um, he went to uh, to his group of associates and said, you know, can't we do this in the United States? And he contacted a man by the name of King Ken Cragen. Uh, because Ken was Lionel Richie's manager, and Harry Belafonte felt like Lionel Richie was at that point in time, you know, a major star, one of the biggest pop stars in terms of the charts of the time, and someone with the, who was very prolific as a songwriter, someone who knew a lot of people, and so Harry Belafonte wanted uh, Lionel Richie to kind of be one of the first people he talked to about his idea, and Ken Crogan also was. And it may be Ken Cragen. Why don't we say Ken Cragen? Let's just alternate. Okay. Release the Cragen. Ken Cragen also uh, was the manager for Kenny Rogers, who was similarly, you know, kind wait. of at the peak of his career. So he only uh, he only manages people who've recorded "Lady." No, wait. Is that the is that the song? Lady. That, is that the song that Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers have both done? Yes. I, right? I think that they did it because their manager Ken Cragen put them up to it. <laughs> uh, I, who knows whether they would have known each other otherwise. But Ken Cragen was a rock manager, and he um, Harry Belafonte uh, contacted him, and Ken said, hey, this is, uh, this is something I'd like to get involved in, and began compiling uh, a list of musicians. He went to Quincy Jones, who was the, you know, the obvious guy to sort of get, um, get on board, and so Quincy Jones then brings in Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson wants to work with Lionel Richie. They set off to write the song. I mean, that's virtually a summit of the pop charts at the time. Like, it's a pretty clear that Michael's number one, Lionel Richie's number two, mm -hmm. as far as just unavoidable pop singles at the time. And I, I, I think they were, uh, it, it wasn't immediately clear that, Michael and Kenny were, or I'm sorry, Michael and Lionel were going to write the song, but uh, this was at a time when nobody said no to Michael Jackson. Stevie Wonder was including, including eight-year-olds. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Uh, my, uh, Stevie Wonder was, uh, was engaged at that early point, but uh, Stevie couldn't, you know, drop everything and come write this song with Michael Jackson. So by all accounts, Michael and Lionel like sequestered themselves immediately. And at a certain point, Lionel went, got up and went to get a glass of water. And when he came back, Michael Jackson had, had written, uh, and recorded, you know, a lot, wow. a lot of the tune. It, Michael was, don't go get a glass of water prolific at that point. No, Michael never, uh, never claimed the credit. And I think Lionel wrote the, maybe the music, mm. but, um, but 
Jackson really did they have the title or does Michael Jackson do you think come up with we are the world uh that's a good question and I wonder whether that maybe the title didn't come from Lionel Richie hmm. and then Michael fleshed it out but there so here we are uh, uh, Live Aid happened or I'm sorry Band-Aid happened in 1984 the, the single was released in November of 84 and because the UK has this, by the way, the UK has this thing where um, you want to see which Christmas hit tops the charts. And they a, were very surprised. A thing we don't have. They were surprised that this became like as big a hit as it did. It's the same the year as Last Christmas by George Michael. Uh, although the I worst th- of all Christmas songs. Although I think maybe neither... Ch- uh, maybe that's why we never heard Last Christmas until like the last three years, because... George it, Michael sang on both the great Christmas songs of 84, and then he died on Christmas 20-whatever, 16. Oh, Oh, so, I didn't know that. So, you know. It's a little tidbit. He had a, he had a good Christmas and, and kind of a lousy one. Well, so they started recording We Are the World uh, in January of 85. Only, um, I mean, really just a month after uh, um, Do They Know It's Christmas. And it seems like a reaction, but you're saying it's not. They were both in the works in parallel. No, it absolutely is a reaction. Harry Belafonte was working uh, on his own kind of like uh, sort of nascent project to help benefit. Africa, yeah. but inspired by Do They Know It's Christmas, they rush put together these people, the great, you know, for, uh, their good fortune that Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie are capable of writing songs that fast. And I guess we should point out that this probably all goes back to George's, uh, this is Otis Wilbury's fault, right? This is Concert for Bangladesh. No, George's Nelson Wilbury, I think. Like the Concert for Bangladesh is kind of the ur text for rock as disaster relief benefit right right that's a that's a well the the uh, concert for the people of Campuchia oh yeah, yeah, yeah. was the was the first it's right Campuchia before Bangladesh yeah I guess yeah. that's true because the Bangladesh thing is early eight yeah the, it's, it's whenever the the typhoon flood thing was um the the Campuchia concert happened 79 it was in 79 Paul right McCartney. and that was um and Paul McCartney and The Who and Queen all appeared at that. And it was organized by Paul McCartney. So, you know, of course it was... Oh, no, um, Bangladesh is earlier. Bangladesh is like... That's what, George se- Harrison, yes, right? Yes, 71, 72, yeah. Okay. And so... And Ravi Shankar. And Kampuchea was... It was a series of concerts, right? Yes. Did they actually tour? It was, a like, was it like a Live Aid where they did it in multiple cities? That's a good question. Uh, oh, there were no. It was like a festival. It was a festival that took place over the course of almost a week. Oh yeah, they did a week in London, and then there was the movie. I've never seen the. I've never seen the concert film. The thing about the concert for Campuchia and the and the concert for Bangladesh is that those are big benefit concerts where people get up and play each other's songs, like sort of last waltz style, uh, and and uh, do they know it's Christmas? Is kind of the first like group that's all singing together on yeah, one song where everybody takes a verse. Yeah. The, I don't think there's any kind of super group angle to the concerts for Bangladesh or Capuchin. Maybe they Just all come like, out at the end and sing my back pages. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Everybody but. gets up and, and you know, John Lennon plays with, uh, with a ball in a cup with the, you know, like Curtis Mayfield or whatever it was that he did. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the song, we are the world which is the product of USA for Africa, comes out in March of uh, 1985 and is an enormous hit. And it's, a, it's an enormous hit 
partly because the uh, because it's a real earworm, partly because it's sort of sailing on this idea uh, of the sort of the um, I don't know the American response to the British supergroup, and in the American style, um, the supergroup is one hundred times more super. <laughs> right. Uh, it has Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon. Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. It's basically pulling from whoever can get to New York rather than London. Right. And that's a lot more people. Willie like, Nelson, Bruce Springsteen, um, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles. And then in the chorus, the man you were waiting for, Dan Aykroyd, uh, <laughs> Lindsey Buckingham, which surprises me, but I guess he's, you know. Was Stevie know. Nicks there? I feel like he should have. Lindsay Buckingham. Oh, Sheila E. is there. Bob Geldof came over for it. That's a crossover. All of the Jacksons. Bette Midler. It's, uh, yeah, it's very pan-genre for sure. It really is. Like and getting, you know, getting country stars in and uh, it really does feel like all hands on deck for famine relief. Strangely, Paul Schaefer didn't make an appearance. It seems like the one <laughs> thing of that kind that he didn't. <laughs> that was the last time he was not asked to be the van leader at something. Anyway, uh, we are the world is um, similarly. There are some problematic lyrics to it. Um, in particular, the the uh, the wonderful line um, tonight. Thank God it's them instead of you. Isn't that on? Do they know it's Christmas? Is it? I don't know. Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. We are the world. Am I wrong? No, that's a did they know it's Christmas. It's it's Bono's thing. Oh, I right. had to hear this a hundred times oh, over the holidays. Right. Uh, you're if, right. If you have any questions about Christmas singles, well, I don't. I can't even think of the "We Are the World" lyrics inst- uh, apart from the chorus. Want to make a brighter day from start giving. Um, I mean, the lyrics are very anodyne. You don't want anything that anyone can disagree with. So it's right. all about how the human race is one family. Right. Well, and I believe that 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 is. Uh, it expresses Michael Jackson's worldview because you do hear that uh, sure. reiterated in Heal his the world, music. Black right. or white. He's got he's got so many of these songs, and so it's it's a very and Michael Jackson is at the peak of his power. So it's a very Michael Jackson sounding song, which attributes uh, which you can attribute somewhat to its success. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is primed to hear these voices do this kind of music. Uh, so it's a huge, huge, huge hit. It raises. Um, it raises millions of dollars and uh, is sort of, I think, widely considered an unmitigated success. Again, the money goes to Ethiopia through a variety of foundations and NGOs, and the revolution there continues. Uh, the 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 leader of the uh, the Derg is a man by the name of Minjitsu. Mingitsu, Haile Mariam, who is a, who's a real blackguard and, uh, and is continuing to suppress these revolutionary organizations. But the, uh, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front and the Tigray People's Liberation Front are making real uh, inroads in the, in the leadership of the Derg. And so Although the famine starts to recede in 1985, um, the strife there in Ethiopia continues. And 
the desire on the part of the West to continue to help Africa uh, now has uh, gotten a, a, a head of steam, and the people involved don't want to let this good thing just dissipate. Geldof puts together um, a, a huge benefit concert that ha- that takes place both in England and in the United States called Live Aid, which happens on in July of eighty five. So this is just a few months after the relief of we or the release of We Are the World. Here comes Live Aid, and that's a, that's a full year of. I wonder. I wonder when the benefit fatigue kicks in. I guess we'll maybe we'll find out. Well, we will. We will find out. The uh, the uh, Live Aid again is a huge success. It reunites Queen and Led Zeppelin. Uh, it is a, it's a, a huge cultural moment. And after Live Aid, I imagine all these, uh, all these entertainers are casting about for something exciting to do. Um, and one of the people trying to figure out what to do next is Ken Cragen or Crogan. We now have a benefit, uh, industrial complex. That's right. And Ken seizes on an idea along with Harry Belafonte to he seizes on an idea and he seizes on Harry Belafonte. And, uh, Harry Belafonte seized he, on him. He grabs him by the lapels. They're, they're just they're grabbing one another. They're Day-o. jumping for joy and they're thinking to themselves, we have a great idea, which is what if we formed a human chain all the way across America as a publicity event and we would sell t-shirts and get maybe corporate sponsorship. We would raise money. People would buy their way into the human chain. chain. And in making this chain all the way across America, people holding hands from one coast to the other, we would raise money to help people dying of starvation from a now um, from a famine that now seems to have abated, it 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 isn't a cynical ploy, I don't think, but it is a confusing one. <laughs> it, I, I was thinking that it seems like it's leveraging just my memory of the early eighties. A lot of this Guinness Guinness Book of World Records fervor. Do you remember the TV boom of that's incredible and real people and B- Ripley's Believe It or Not? There was a real TV boom of. Um, just amazingly scaled world record, uh, amazing feats. And I feel like putting a, a chain of people across a continent really ties into that whole, you know, it's like you're making the world's biggest omelet, but with, um, you know, it's, it's all for a great cause. So it, it combines the, you know, the benefit angle of uh, USA for Africa and Live Aid and Band-Aid with this kind of American see to a shining sea spectacle. Yep. That's that's on the airwaves all the time. This guy who can ride six bikes at once or whatever. Yeah, it's Gump, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Gump, who is you know in this in this case like pitted against the Derg. It's the one time you have a Gump versus the eternal Derg. struggle. Uh, uh, holding hands across America, a human chain, uh, wasn't a brand new idea either. In oh, 1976, really? a man by the name of Marzen, Marvin Rosenblum conceived of this concept and actually named it 
hands across America. But he just told his wife he didn't tell Harry Belafonte? He tried to get it together. He tried to make it happen. And I think he got a section right outside of Chicago where he had 10 miles of people holding <laughs> hands. It's a good start, Marvin, but... But it didn't really catch fire. And he, he let the copyright expire. So Harry Belafonte was conscious of it. Um, and he and uh, Cragen felt like they could, they could really make this happen. And they did. Uh, they got corporate sponsorship from Coca-Cola. They promoted this idea that on, uh, that on one day in May in 1986, they were going to – it was going to be May 25th, 1986. Uh, people across the country were going to form this unbreakable human chain and raise what, uh, what Cragen thought would be $100 million for African relief. It kind of uh... – so I'm looking at a map, and I know you're going to go here eventually, but the problem with the line across America is that it doesn't involve most of America. Like, yeah. much of the country is missed by the width of, like, you know, by the width of, uh, you know, much of Europe, you know? Like, if if you live in Montana, your closest hands-across-America point is Albuquerque, New Mexico, four states away. And there was a lot of complaint about it. Uh, no, the no kickbacks uh, picking the route? Well, like, Te- Ted Kennedy— protested that Hands Across America didn't include Massachusetts. He was, you know, and a lot of people were like, I can't drive 15 hours to um, to you, hold you hands for 15 minutes. If Ted Kennedy is on Martha's Vineyard, you definitely don't want him driving down. Boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, but but there was, a, there was a, a, a big problem with the idea of a human chain, which is like, yeah, it's sure, if, you're, if it goes through your town, all you have to do is roll out of bed. But to get to get to where you can stand and hold hands with everybody. There's also the obvious problem. There's going to be more people wanting to hold hands in, say, downtown Manhattan so the, the, than there are in, you know, eastern Arizona or southern Oklahoma. That's right. The The human chain started in, the ba- in Battery Park in Manhattan, and for a lot of its length uh, on the East Coast, the the chain was six people deep. Or I mean, you know, it was it was a huge crowd of people all holding hands um, in an unbroken line, and it went across the George Washington Bridge and into New Jersey and down and all the way to Maryland was truly an unbroken chain. I think somewhere in Maryland there was a stretch where uh, I don't know somebody let go of their hands. Maryland or, letting uh, down know. the side again. But then it continues, sort of snaking across the country. Actually, the first person in line was a was a little girl, um, uh, a little girl by the name of Amy Sherwood, who was living in poverty in Brooklyn. And I think uh, uh, as Harry Belafonte thought this through, he realized that, that there were a lot of people who were going hungry in the United States. And he wanted to include, he wanted it to be bigger than just a, um, a famine relief in Africa issue, and he wanted some of this money to go to people in the U.S. Well, it does seem weird that an American-themed event is not for domestic poverty. And so it started to expand its purview, and and Amy Sherwood sort of represented, um, I guess, what was there as a as a hungry American to like be the first. Like when you say she was the first one there, you mean she's the first the, longitudinally? The, the first the, longitudinally. She, she had one foot in the East River and one <laughs> and a hand holding the first, uh, the, the next person in line. There were a lot of celebrities that wanted to get involved. And at every state and every city, there was, um, 
there were some celebrity hosts. Uh, I'm sure some people that you that you're a pretty big fan of. Do you do you have a list of them over there? I am looking at a list. I, I'm delighted that uh, in Toledo, Ohio, uh, the big star was Jamie Farr, who mm-hmm. played Toledo resident Max Klinger on Mash. That's right. So even the non-big cities got somebody in. They imported somebody. Like Cincinnati got Chewbacca, for example. Yeah, the the Chewbacca. That's the, right. The, the, I, the real Chewbacca. And I, say? I think that uh, that R two D two appeared uh, at some point. He doesn't have hands. C three PO did. R two doesn't have hands. Well, the thing is, he has those little boxes that you say they come up. Zzz, little things that come out. You can grab a hold of R two D two. So it's hands and and bits, and, uh, other bits, and uh, USB ports. I'm sure America. that there were people in line who also had lost a hand or maybe both hands. So it wasn't. I, it, you couldn't. I mean. Couldn't restrict it just to people with hands. That's true. It's ableist. Anyway, it, it snaked all the way across the country and um, and largely achieved its goal. In the desert southwest, there were large places where uh, there were gaps in the chain, you, just because, as you say, there were plenty of people in Montana that would have filled those gaps if they could have gotten there. But people did a pretty good job of, of, um, of trying to fake it, right? They would... They would hold ribbons and oh, okay. uh, separate themselves, you know, by the length of a ribbon. Uh, at one point, there was a story that a, there was a, a, a Greyhound bus driving along and the driver saw a big section that didn't have anybody in. And he stopped the bus and asked everybody to, on the bus to get out and fill the gap. Um, Couldn't they just have the Rajneeshi bring in, um, you know, a bunch of homeless people they and, have, and have them fill the They were all up in gaps. Oregon. Yeah, they were busy. There was quite a bit of controversy. In fact, the line actually went in one of the gates of the White House up onto the steps of the portico where Ron and Nancy stepped out and joined hands and then went down the other side and out the gate. And there were a lot of people that were that objected to Reagan uh, being in Hands Across America because he his policies were precisely the ones that were defunding. It was all along con. Amy Sherman at that point grabs a grabs an electro electrode sitting in Battery Park. Battery Park's a literal battery in this example. And it just zaps all the way up the chain. Right. Kills 200,000 people. Kills, yeah, Jamie Farr. <laughs> it's all worth it. Chewbacca, it's all worth it. <laughs> uh, weirdly, one of the things that uh, that complexified Hands Across America was that on that same day, Bob Geldof had put together a global fun run called sport aid where Wait, people, like he has a competing event. People were running 10 K races in major capitals all across Europe. Uh, a, a, a Sudanese cross country runner by the name of Omar Khalifa took a torch, lit it in Africa, carried that torch to Athens Combined it with the Olympic torch, which had never been lit outside of yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, I was about to say it's it's not it's eighty six. This was the only time that an Olympic torch was ever lit outside of the context of the Olympics. And then Khalifa grabbed the torch and ran from Athens through all the capitals of Europe. And this event was also happening in the United States, um, uh, like massive sort of collected fun runs or ten k races to raise money for Africa under the aegis of sport aid. So this is a coordinated effort. Bob Geldof's not trying to use sport aid to... It, it was a coordinated effort, but they hadn't coordinated it with Hands Across America. It was just a coincidence? It's just a coincidence. Realized? 
and they were drawing from one another's audience. Come no on. one in America knows about Sport Aid, although it was a big deal elsewhere. I thought Sport Aid had electrolytes in it. Because we were, oh, that's A A D E. Right. Uh, right, because we were busy swaying with Ed Begley Jr. That's right. Uh, Hands Across America also tried to have a, a song that rocketed up the charts. I can still I can still hear the song. But the problem is the song, first of all, was written by Toto or performed by Toto. <laughs> and second of all, Toto was the only, they were the only super group involved. There was, no one else was in. They, they didn't figure out a way to get. Toto doesn't count as a super group. No. It has all the members of, of Toto. Toto. But like Michael, I, for some reason, Hands Across America, a song that you can sing. Hands across this blessed land or something. It didn't. Hands across America. They didn't do the super group thing. And uh, for the life of me, I can't figure out why. Um, like they've got musicians in the line. Just mic them up. Michael Jackson was standing there in Gary, Indiana or wherever. Youngstown, Ohio, it turns out. That's right. Somehow, somehow, uh, when, uh, when Ken Cragen was putting it all together, he forgot the key component of having all these celebrities. Which, which is was call Kenny and Lionel. Get and, them to sing. Yeah. Well, in the end, uh, uh, Manjustu Haile Mariam and his, um, and his Derg were finally ousted. As a result of Hands Across America? Well, it's unclear. <laughs> but the, the Tigray uh, People's Liberation Front, uh, in, con- in coordination with the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, and I think maybe more importantly, um, maybe not coincidentally, uh, um, the result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the sudden evaporation of all of that That's all their funding. material aid. Um, the, the Derg were deposed and a new government was put in place um, in the form of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Love the ER, EPRDF. Uh, and uh, Eritrea or Eritrea uh, broke off from Ethiopia and formed its own country. And uh, for the most part, Peace reigns in the valley. The Tigray now, uh, although they were an ethnic minority, um, they were able to form a, a stable parliamentary government in Ethiopia and, uh, and really have, at least within the context of Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, there haven't really been any subsequent famines. Bob Geldof did it. And that concludes Hands Across America. Entry 565.PR1121, certificate number 26004, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, you are no doubt living in a famine-stricken terror land of your own, with no pop stars to come to your aid. But you should know that uh, if you somehow have access to the internet of our era, you can find us at Atkin Jennings and at John Roderick on social media, at Omnibus Project Jointly. Uh, you can uh, you could have found us on email in our era at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. We received mail, physical mail, at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. In fact, John, speaking of Africa, mm. we received this lovely uh, Ghanaian... Whoa. Smock? Is it Ghanaian? Is that the demonym for Ghana? Ghanaian. Ghanaian? Uh, From uh, a listener. 
Look at that. That's a really gorgeous thing. Un- unfurl that. Who just returned from a two-year stint with the Peace Corps. And I guess he was inspired by us covering the, uh, the twins of Benin in a neighboring region to send us. It's made of these long strips of, yeah, of hand-woven cloth. It's like cloth. bark cloth almost. How, how big is it? Which, which of us will it fit? It would probably fit both of us at once. Well, it, it seems like it's wide but short. It's like a Cosby sweater. So wide like me, short like you. <laughs> yeah, I think you would need to wear pants with it. It's not a... Uh, put it on. It's not a onesie. Let's see. Is this appropriation if I put this on? I don't think so. No, nobody's... Uh, I'm just going to describe it. I've been doing the show in a daishiki for years, uh-huh. and nobody said boo. Okay. Looks good so far. It kind of looks like a little bit of a like a prairie dress. It seems like it has armholes. Yeah, it does. It does. There okay. we go. Okay. I see. Stand up. Let me see it. It's it's a little... It's blousey. It only it goes about <laughs> to my butt. Uh, it's nice. It's definitely something you wear. Th- but yeah, it's got these kind of big blousey sleeves. It's a very attractive garment. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I can take no credit It gives credit you a little it. bit of a, like a Courtney Love sort of baby doll look. Like a... Because it's... Because it's... Baby much, spice kind of a thing? Yeah, much bigger than you and, and short, high-waisted. Oh yeah, and look at it in the back. Like it really, it really blossoms out there. If you, I could have a little more junk in the trunk, yeah, I feel and like would be fun. I feel like it, it, it. Either a tsetse fly can get in, or a tsetse fly would be chased out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what that garment's relationship to tsetse flies is. Well, you can definitely. Uh, are you going to ever wear this? Well, let's see. Do you I want mean, to look Ghanaian? Uh, well, I'll try it on. Do you want to put it on? No, no, no. I'll try it. I, I'll try it on after after the show. All right. Uh, so yeah, you can uh, send us any any artifacts of your choosing. It doesn't have to be a dashiki, but um, apparently now I have one and John doesn't, so he's going to be very sad every time mm. I do the show wearing Aww. wearing my new Ghanaian smock. Listeners, if you would like to congregate with other listeners of the Omnibus, there's the Futurelings Facebook page and the Futurelings subreddit where a lot of good times are happening and mostly people are complaining uh, about John's knowledge of two-stroke power mowers. Oh, well, they don't know anything. <laughs> they don't know anything. The only, Stay the, far away. The only people that are complaining are, well, I'm not going to get into it. We'll talk about it in our addenda episode. That's right. Speaking of addenda episodes, we now do a monthly bonus show. For uh, supporters of the program, you can show your support at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when we still had a connection to a time when people would, in America or in Europe, would feel enough of a common cause that they could put together this kind of strange collective effort. Can you imagine? Really ambitious too, yeah. like 3000 miles of, of, of infrastructure. Can you imagine someone thinking today that they could get everyone in America behind some initiative? I mean, if you were to say, let's feed the people in Africa now, they're fully 50% of the people in America would say, let them die. Well, yeah, you've got the kind of pushback I was talking about. Like, no, that's not how we solve these problems. Right. We need to, Give give them microfinance and make them entrepreneurs. Yeah, you can't right. just give them food. Uh, but but to imagine that this wasn't even the product of a of a big multinational corporation, but like one 
sort of mid-level Hollywood manager and right. a, and what would have Just even one guy at CAA or something. Yeah, and a guy that was 65 years old that was famous for Calypso music and a guy from the Boomtown Rats, a band that nobody really liked that much. And yet they they did all these amazing things. The the problem of course with Hands Across America is it it raised something like 35 million dollars but 20 million of it went to administration costs. Well, yeah, you're administrating, uh, you, you've got this thing in 100 cities. Right. You know, it's like running a political campaign in 50 states. So these days, I mean, $15 million is sort of a line item for Bill Gates. So maybe the economics have changed, but amazing to think, futurelings, that maybe Ken and I are just living in a period where these things seem impossible and you because you are a sentient Aspen, are always uh, holding hands across America. Well, you'd have to get a line of Aspen through some pretty Aspen-unfriendly parts of the country, wouldn't you? Well, but maybe hyper-evolved Aspen can live in places that are hot and dry. Or it could be roots across America where it's all different plants. And so you've got your... There probably is some. Cacti. I bet you could connect root tissue from coast to coast from one end to the other well, yeah where would it i mean i guess you'd get to the rivers but then there's surely mossy gunk under the rivers that are whose roots intermingle at the shore true. With, we need that mossy gunk or we're going to get broken at the at the mighty mississippi mossy gunk from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may have been our final word but if providence allows, in the form of one continuous line of gunk, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>